I forgot my electronic copy of the Bible. We started a service, so I wasn't able to read the text. I just got convicted, perhaps I need to start memorizing the whole thing. It wouldn't be necessarily a bad thing to memorize. Some of I do have memorized, but not big chunks of Scripture. Our passage, of course, is Revelation chapter 10, picking up in verse 8 and going to the rest of the chapter. Revelation 10, verse 8. Then the voice which I heard from heaven, I heard again speaking with me and saying, Go, take the book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel, telling him to give me the little book. And he said to me, Take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. I took the little book out of the angel's hands and ate it. And in my mouth it was sweet as honey. And when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And they said to me, You must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Gracious Father, Almighty God, Creator and Sustainer, we come, we are here to listen to your voice. Speak to us, O God. And as we just sang, because of your great love you have lavished upon us that we could be called children of God, it is well with us. In Christ's name, amen. In a way of introduction, just bear with me. I like to share with you the top 10 favorite American foods around the world. So it not might be favorite here in America, but as they ask people around the world, what's your favorite food? Well, number 10 is breakfast sausage. Do you like breakfast sausage, anybody? Yeah. Nice picture of one, isn't it? Uh, number nine was chocolate chip cookies. Anybody have chocolate chip cookies and milk before they go to bed? My wife buys chocolate chips for our snacks, and she yells at me because a lot of times I get carried away to eat two or three little snacks. Never mind. <laughs> go moving right along. Uh, number eight is s'mores. Ah, you, you have that? That's pretty good eating around the campfire. And, and number seven, you may not know what this is. It's called a cronut. It is a, a cross between a donut and a croissant. Uh, this is popular around the world, drinking with tea and coffee. And number six, chicken and waffles. You can get this down at the IHOP there in Decatur. I've had it myself. But go hungry. That's a lot of food. A lot of food. Uh, number five is pancakes. Yeah, a lot of good syrup and butter boil. I'm making myself hungry. All right, moving right along. Number four is mac and cheese. That's one of my favorite with the girls growing up. Still a favorite of mine. Number three, hot dogs. Now, the only thing in my, my personal opinion, the only thing wrong with this picture is the ketchup on a hot dog. You only put mustard on hot dogs. That's what my wife told me. Yes, honey, I said it. Uh, number two is cheesecake. I'm not saying this because of cottage per night, but Miss Bev makes an awesome cheesecake. 
<laughs> yeah, I got an amen on that one. <laughs> and of course, number one is the old American hamburger. Now, how many of you enjoy at least one of those items just listed? There they all are. If you like just one, just go ahead and raise your hand. You like one of them? Do you like at least two of them? How about five or more? Raise them strong and proud. All right. Many of us enjoy eating this food. We love the taste of it, some of it being real sweet. However, there may be a problem, such as you may be gluten intolerant. Now, gluten is a protein that is found in wheat and several other grains. Grains that contain gluten include barley and rye. Now, you can get gluten-free products, but some people say they don't taste exactly the same. Another problem you may have is you might be lactose intolerant. You're unable to fully digest the sugar or the lactose in milk. Milk products such as cream, cheese, yogurt, ice cream, and butter. Now, I don't have a picture, but just use your imagination. Picture an ice cream sundae, if you will. How sweet, how sweet it is to your taste. And right now, as I exclaim this to you, you can almost imagine just getting one and tasting the ice cream, the hot fudge. I don't know if you like nuts or not. I'll see you all at Dairy Queen after service today. <laughs> but it's great to eat that ice cream sundae, but it would become bitter in your stomach if you're lactose intolerant. Similar, this is all similar to what we find in today's text. John's experience with the little book or little scroll. Now it may be described as little because of the immense size of the angel. Going back to Revelation 10 verses 1 and 2, John writes, I saw another strong or mighty angel coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud, and the rainbow was upon his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet were like pillars of fire, and he had in his hand a little book which was open. He places his right foot on the sea and his left on the land. This is who John is talking about getting this book from, this little book. Look in verse 8. John tells the voice which he had heard from heaven, I heard again speaking with me, saying, Go, take the book or the scroll which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. Now, as we just talked about, that's the same voice John heard from heaven back in verse 4, where he says, Seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken, and do not write them. So this is the same voice that said that, that is saying this now in our text. Now, think about this for a second. It tells them to go take the book. Now, look how, go back and think about how John describes his angel. And now the voices tell him, go take the book. Don't ask permission, just go take it. That book, which he's, is in his hand, and it's open. It must have been somewhat intimidating, don't you think? But the authority that provides over this vision from its outset is clear. We, way back in Revelation 1, this is from God. That's the authority of it. So John had no choice but to obey. But look what he does in verse 9. So I went to the angel, telling him to give me the book. So he does ask for it. So instead of just simply going taking the book, John asks for the book. 
The angel hands the scroll over, but gives him instructions. He says, take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And then John consumes it as instructed, and in verse 10 he tells us this is exactly how the angel said it would be. It was sweet in his mouth, but bitter in his stomach. So what can we make of this? What can be said of this? Consuming the scroll is equivalent to the simulation of its message. Wherever the contents of the book or the scroll may be, John must make them a part of himself. Only as it becomes part of his own life will the message, the incarnational effect, accomplish what God intends. He must assimilate, make the message part of him. Now we see the background of this is in Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 10, through Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 3. Now in that context, the contents of the scroll are provided. We see Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 10, limitations, mourning, and row. But apparently the scroll that Ezekiel eats is sweet. We see that in Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 3. However, the, skull, the goal is the same. You are to assimilate the message so it becomes part of you as you declare God's message. O proclaim. Now, the English word proclaim comes from the, the Greek word karasuo, which means to proclaim publicly. It's like the old town choir that would come out and say, Hear ye, hear ye, saith the king, and then make the pronouncement. Preaching is this the public announcement or declaration of God's message. So the authority does not rest with me or whoever is bringing the message, the authority rests with the person who gave the message in the first place, and that would be God himself. And what you see here is a practical lesson for any of us, particularly us preachers, when we get before God's people, or any amount of people, or just one person, and proclaim God's message. Now bear with me. There's a thing taught in preaching class. It's called Aristotle's canon of rhetoric. Because in my speaking, let me disqualify this first. I'm proclaiming God's word. The authority and the ability to change hearts ride with this fact that it is God's word and his Holy Spirit. I can talk to him blue in the face, but I cannot convince anyone by whatever words I use to victim of sin and or righteousness. That is the Holy Spirit's job. With that said... I like to become a better communicator, what I'm saying, so I can, I don't want to misrepresent God's word, and I want to do the best I can so people can understand what the message is. So he takes his canons of rhetoric, and he calls for three things, ethos, pathos, and logos. Ethos is the credibility of the witness, so this makes sense. I'm up here proclaiming God's word, but then you see me drunk and naked or I'm down the street. How would my, my credibility be? Who would listen to me? You're not practicing what? What's the rest of that? You're not practicing what? What you're preaching. You're not practicing. In other words, do as I say, but not do as I do. But that also goes for all of you as well. We have to have credibility. In other words, not just talk the talk, but walk the walk, as they say. Now, John's age, he was up in years, his consistency of conviction and his long-term service to the Lord are sufficient ethos. He has credibility. 
Then he called for Aristotle pathos, which is the internalizing of the message. And it's emphasized and stressed by the ethos of the messenger, gives persuasive power, and the empathy needed to be an effective communicator. In other words, preach with conviction. It's only until I internalize the message that I can really preach with conviction. And to illustrate this, I think I said this more than once from the same pulpit, but I want to just bear with me. Was well, I Southwestern? I went to chapel one day, and I could not tell you who the messenger was, who was preaching, what they were preaching on. But this is what he said. Exactly like this. The problem with our preaching today, there's no conviction. Now, what did I just communicate? No conviction. Instead of coming to him and saying, we need conviction in our preaching. I can only preach like that when I've taken the message, internalized it, and make it part of my own life. In other words, instead of just telling you about it, I need to apply it to my life first. You know, they, they say when you point a finger, you have three fingers pointing back at you. Being an effective communicator is not only telling me what God's message is, but living it out for myself. And then you have the Logos, which is the contents of the message. Part of divine revelation. The authority is with God. So you have credibility, internalizing in the message itself. I'm going to say this on the record. How dare I step in any pulpit in America and do anything else but preach the word of God? I'm not here for an a, uh, encouragement speech or a motivational speak. I'm here to preach the word of God. If it's an encouraging text, you preach it encouragingly. If it's a warning text, you preach it as a warning. Whatever the text dictates, that's how you approach it. So you'll only be effective when you internalize it. Internalize the message before you attempt to tell others about it. See, if you haven't figured this out already with me, the hardest part for me is not knowing what the truth is, but then making application. Okay, Tim, I don't understand to be true. Now what? See, when I internalize it, it makes me think of my own life, which then leads to better illustrations. I can start pulling stuff out of life, as I did with the food. You can relate to that. When you eat something that's good in your mouth and makes your, your stomach bitter and upset, you can relate to what John said it was, how it was when he ate the little book. Now, this uh, applies not only to understanding the message itself, but embraces the application of what the message is and then to apply it to one's life. See, John is to simulate the message. And as we have seen, it, it effects of it are both pleasurable and distasteful. For those who have been willing to receive God's promised redemption in Christ, the message of the gospel is sweeter than honey. It is the aroma, the fragrance of life unto life. However, for those who reject the gospel and continue to be determined in their rebellion against God, it's the aroma of death. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are the fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, aroma from death or leading to death or the smell of death. To the other, aroma from life 
to life the fragrance of life. My experience has been when you're out there talking with people in the workplace, Walmart, wherever you may shop, you can talk about things of God. You can start with creation. Look how beautiful it is outside there. We have a cool day or we have rain. You can lead right into there had to be an intelligent being of some sort put us all together. It leads you about God. But the dividing line will always fall when you start talking about who Jesus is. Because to people who don't understand it, it is nonsense. It is foolishness. Because they can't understand it. They can't wrap their mind around it. That's the reason when we go out and we witness to people, before I step on the pulpit, before I go witness anybody, I must pray, God, I need your Holy Spirit to help that person understand the message. Which leads me to my next point. There are some who claim the name of Christ who receive pleasure from the concept of eternal judgment of others. People who take, well, they'll get theirs. Ha! That's not to be our attitude. John would never be in that category. But we understand, as John understood, for God to be righteous and just, his judgment is necessary. Let me explain. God is the righteous judge. Let's say, for example, I'll pick on myself. I go in and I break into Charlie and Paula's house. And I steal some things and I tear up the house. That was evident that I'm there because they have cameras in the house. So everyone knows I'm guilty. They know I'm guilty. I know I'm guilty. The Lord knows I'm guilty. The prosecuting attorney knows I'm guilty. But see, I've known this judge all my life. Him and my daddy grew up together. So the judge looking at me and saying, well, you never had any criminal offense before. I'm going to let you go with the warning. How do you think Charlie and Paula might feel towards me? Or feel towards that judge? Wait a second. You don't understand. He, he took a family heirloom. He sold it. He tore up our house. How can you let him off scot-free with nothing? What kind of judge are you in the first place? Because we want justice. And if that judge who knows me if he's a good judge and he's bound by the law to administer justice, regardless of how he may feel about me. God is bound by his very character to administer justice because he's a righteous and just God. I mean, think about it. If he's not going to render judgment on sin, well, why did Jesus die a horrible death on the cross? Do you want to serve a God like that? That this kind of makes stuff up as he goes along? Who say, I won't stand there one day or two mama's kid? No, I won't serve a God like that. But the God we serve is not like that. Sin has to be dealt with. He made the way for us to escape the wrath that is coming. That's through his son, Jesus Christ. Or if we so choose to rebel against him, we'll pay for it ourselves when the day of judgment comes. And, of course, it's your choice. You have that exercise of choice to decide what you want to do. But as far as us believers, our attitude must be like God himself, not wanting anyone to perish. That's God's, that's what he says. He, he doesn't want anyone to perish. So the message of the gospel, the message of the Bible, is sweet to our taste. It's the word of God gives us life. 
But it's also bitter in our stomach because we know not everyone's going to accept it. Not everyone's going to come to a saving knowledge of Christ. And let me encourage you. You're not responsible for the results. It's our mission to declare the message faithfully and correctly. What the people decide to do with it, that's between them and God. doesn't mean I don't care. Of course I care. I was given a gift at 38 years of age. A gift I did nothing to earn or pay for. It's a gift. Gift of salvation. And if God can take someone like me, the chief of sinners, as Paul says, and turn my life around, I know he can do it for anybody. I think the problem is we are our worst, we are our worst enemies because he listened to the voice of lies and not to the voice of truth. Now look back in verse 11. And they said to me, you must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Think about this. Where's John at? He's on the island of Patmos, a rocky, a rocky, excuse me, a rocky, barren island, 40 miles from Ephesus in the Aegean Sea. And he's up in years. And they're telling him, you must, the thought of being useful to God at an old age off of this barren land somewhere, 40 miles from the nearest civilization, must have seemed somewhat improbable at first. But that's the message. And what is the message? The message is what he just internalized when he ate the book. Now, we're not told exactly what the contents are. There's many people who kind of speculate where it may be, and I'll leave that up to you to go search that out on your own. But he does tell them he's going to prophesy. And the message that he's going to bring will concern people in general. The nations into which people have grouped themselves, the language groups people have been divided into since the Tower of Babel, and if you want to know what the Tower of Babel is, see me after I give you the scripture reference read about that story. Basically, people are going to build a tower to get to heaven itself, and God confused them with different languages. And it's also concerned the kings and the rulers will be part of the prophecy as well. And that, that comes to the end of chapter 10. But bear with me for a few more minutes as we talk about some more implications and a conclusion. God's plan of salvation and blessing is the subject of many unearthed thanksgiving on part of the redeemed, the saints of God. That's right. If you are a believer in Christ, you're giving your life to him. His blood now covers your sin. You are a saint, literally a holy one. The story of God's graciousness and salvation has become a theme of a thousand hymns to sing. Pick up the hymn. Look at the song we're singing here already. We're praising God for what? His gift of salvation, his grace, his mercy and forgiveness. In fact, that one song we just sang kind of sums it all up. How great is our God. Sing with me. How great is our God. Now sometimes we, speaking of the church, express astonishment that the message of salvation is greeted by our breathed by the world with a yawn and frequently with a mild to spiteful or malicious antagonism. But 1 Corinthians 2.14 puts it this way. 
But a natural man, the unbeliever, does not accept or does not welcome the things of the Spirit of God or what comes from God's Spirit. For they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them. He just doesn't understand it. I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but we call the gospel. What's another word for gospel? Good news, right? They have to know the bad news. Why is the good news good news? Because of the bad news. Bad news, we all deserve God's judgment and his wrath because we are sinners. That's the bad news. Well, the good news is Jesus paid that debt for us so that we could become righteousness in him. That's the good news. But when the world, all they hear about is the love and the peace and the joy that God brings you in this wonderful gift of eternal life, we have to put it together because we're doing a disservice to God. We're unsurping his authority because in the Old Testament, people will say, all you see in the Old Testament is the wrath and judgment of God. It's true. There's a lot of judgment and wrath in the Old Testament. But I challenge you, go back and look at those stories in detail. God tells his people, I'm going to do this. But if you simply repent and turn back to me. And you see that circle. I've said that before. God's people with God, everything's fine. Then they start sinning. They start falling away from God. And they spirit the judgment of God. They have confession and repentance. And they get back with God. An unending circle. In the New Testament, we see an emphasis on his love and his mercy and his grace. Well, the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels tell us about Jesus, the incarnation of God in human flesh, God with us. That's the good news. But Jesus didn't destroy the law, he fulfilled the law. He lived the way we never could. He was tempted in all ways, yet he he did not sin one time at all. Therefore, the perfect sacrifice for all of us once and for all we may have salvation. So you have wrath, judgment, love, and grace. What ties that together? God's righteousness. And I've heard this before. At the cross of Christ, you see those two come together in a very powerful way. When you see the cross of Christ, we have one here, represented here above the baptistry. When I see that, I think of mercy. I think of love, I think of grace, I think of the gift of salvation. But when I look there, even longer, you know what else I see? The wrath and the judgment and the punishment for sin. All displayed once for everyone to see on the cross of Christ. As a witness for him, Jesus, you experience both the sweetness and the bitterness. What is sweet for you is often received with opposition and at times can be hostile. I think you make a case now, even here in our own home of the United States of America, Christianity is being met with opposition and more times than not with hostility. This in turn causes stress and bitterness, a knot in your stomach, if you will, when that confrontation develops. Knowing this to be the case, makes the proclamation both sweet and bitter. I like what Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 and 23 tells us, that God's mercies are like the dew. They're new every morning. Oh, I claim that promise a lot. Let's just be honest. (laughs) 
His mercies are always there. But this needs to be accompanied with his justice and his judgment that is to come. And that leads me to the obvious point. You probably see it yourself, but think about this. John ate the whole book. He didn't pick and choose like a taffeteria line. He consumed the whole thing. Which tells me we can't pick and choose what we like and what we don't like. We have to look at the whole counsel of God. Now, I know that I'm not the best communicator, but I am sold out to preach the whole counsel of God. That's where we go new and old. Sometimes we take breaks. Doing that forces me to handle texts that are very difficult. It forces me to apply things that... And I've had this thought, ooh, that's too hard. I don't know if I can say that. I've actually had that thought in my head. Next thought was, no, this is God's word. I have to. And then God goes, yeah, Tim, you're right, but you know what? Let's apply it to your life first. Some rejoice to speak of the love and grace of God, the honey, if you will, of God's blessing. However, they loathe to declare faithfully God's judgment. Justice and judgment. Justice and judgment. I'll get it right. Others seem just ready to pound on anybody and tell them about the impending judgment of God. While stressing infrequently or even at all the love of God. So you got two, two things being stressed. The love and forgiveness of God. God's here to forgive you. Uh, you can have all these things. It's called the name it and claim it gospel, if you will, that far extreme. And on the other extreme, you have the hellfire and damnation. You better turn or burn. You have all those going on. I will tell you, both of those are not correct. You need to be in the middle of both those and tell the whole council to tell the entire message. Because either of those approaches is inadequate. Because you're failing to assimilate the whole counsel of God, or worse, having understood it, you fail to share everything that God has shown you. It's worse for me to declare to you the, the love and grace of God without telling you about the judgment of God, because either one of those I'm failing to share with you. I understand it, but do I assimilate it? Apply it my own life and then faithful to the message. You know, the, the Bible can be very difficult at times. The Bible is very, how can I say, it doesn't pull any punches. It presents the human condition, the good, the bad, and the ugly. I mean, take a look at the Old Testament, and even in the New, some of the people we come across in its pages. You talk about some dysfunctional families. Look at, look at the Old Testament for priests. Even the New Testament. And the Bible does repeat itself a lot. Because you know why? We forget. We forget a lot. So, in wrapping all this up, just bear with me. Close your eyes. Don't fall asleep. Go back in the moment of time when you felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit and you gave your life to Christ, and when you did that, 
what did you experience? What were those feelings inside? What was going through your mind and your heart in that moment? Just think about that for a second. Let this marinate your, your mind and your heart with that experience. Joy, happiness, peace. Perhaps you slept that night like you never slept before because you had peace with God. Now to silently say to God, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Rally around that. And as you think on that, I will say this in conclusion. There are people, not just outside these walls, inside these walls, if you look at current surveys, that do not know that and never had that experience. 19 million people estimate are lost in the state of Texas. How many are in Montague County or in the Forestburg community? That is our mission field. And we have to be like John. We can't beat around the bush. We have to tell them the whole counsel of God, everything. Be honest with them. Because if we truly love them, as God tells us and commands us to love, how can we do nothing else but to share that message in love with them and telling them it's only because I love you it's because I love you I'm sharing this with you because I do not want you to be lost I do not want you going to hell for all eternity Heavenly Father we thank you for your for your word God, we get, sometimes we get so nervous and afraid. Of what other people may think or say about us. Father, I pray in this moment you remind each one of us how you see us. As your son or your daughter. A precious creation of yours whom you sent your son to die for that you would love us so much and care about us so much there's nothing you're not willing to do to restore that relationship with each and every one of us Father as your spirit continues to move I pray that you give each one of us the courage and the boldness to step out and to step up. And that could mean some of us need to come forward for the first time and give our lives to Christ. And some of us need to come and repent and ask for forgiveness. Some of us need to go across the room Pray with a brother or sister. Whatever 
we need to do. May we do it now before it's everlasting too late. In Christ's name we pray.